good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll catch up with uber-talented theater artist Matthew C. Yee. The West Suburban native is the writer, composer, and star of the world premiere musical Lucy and Charlie's Honeymoon, which just opened. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to preview what they're most looking forward to at the theater this summer. Later in the show, I'll chat with author Stephanie McNeil about her new book, Swipe Up for More. It provides a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to be an influencer and why the industry is still booming. And I'll highlight some of my favorite Father's Day songs. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. This is the title track from the world premiere musical Lucy and Charlie's Honeymoon. It's being presented by Looking Glass Theater through July 16th. Well, we gotta do something to get out of town for a while. To celebrate our marriage with a little bit of style. Doing bad things with you really gets my heart rate up. The new musical comes from the company's artistic associate, Matthew C. Yee. He wrote the book, composed the music, and is starring in the production as Charlie. The title characters, Lucy and Charlie, played by Aurora Arachi Winter and Yi, respectively, are newlyweds who turn to crime in the form of a gas station robbery just as they embark on their honeymoon. Lucy and Charlie are less Bonnie and Clyde and more rebels without a cause, at least at first. The newlyweds are revolting against the expectations they feel as outsiders in the United States and first-generation Asian Americans. Their bumbling robbery was technically successful, but the incident ends up putting a wild series of events into motion. Along the way, Lucy and Charlie confront a human trafficking operation, avoid quote-unquote law enforcement, and deal with some family issues. These characters are quirky and memorable, there are lots of laughs, but also some very somber moments that highlight the seriousness of certain issues explored in the musical. A soundtrack of country and Americana drives the action and narrative forward. The quality of the songs he has written and the standout performance of the music on stage from the actors who double as band members really brings the show to life. I recently caught up with Yee backstage at Looking Glass Theater in between a matinee and evening performance to talk about the journey to bringing Lucy and Charlie's honeymoon to life. The origins of the comedic musical go back over a decade, Yi came up with the seeds of the idea during an exercise in an acting class. First came up with the idea in a scene class, in an acting class where we were, it was like an on-camera style class where we had to come up with a scene and film it with a film crew and um, that we had hired. And I came up with this idea of a couple who is deciding that they're, they're 
going to rob a gas station and they're trying to decide how they're going to do it. And the whole scene is them just arguing about, it's like a three minute scene of them just arguing outside of the gas station about how they're going to rob the place. So that was the origin. And then from there, I, I kept developing it over the years. Initially, Yi envisioned the idea as something more for on screen with the focus being on this fictional couple. But over time, the idea expanded in scope. Yi was inspired to incorporate some more personal themes and music was added. I had been playing with expanding it into something longer for a while, and I thought maybe it could be either like a film or a short film or something like that. I had always imagined it as on camera. But then I started doing more theater in Chicago, and I got really excited at the idea of making it a theater piece that while is live theater is, is still like from the perspective of like an on-camera sort of film, I wanted to find ways to create moments in the show that felt like they could have been filmed but are done in a really like kind of DIY and janky way on stage. But the music was a later addition. The addition of sort of it being about the Asian American experience was probably in like 2017. I decided that that was what the story that I was going to tell. Lucy and Charlie's Honeymoon got a reading as part of Steppenwolf Theater's Lookout series in the spring of 2019. While that was a big step, Yi says the project continued to evolve after that reading and during the pandemic. Writing it in 2019 was, I was a different person, and I didn't understand fully what the show needed to be or like what the thesis of the story was or like what really the themes were, and now I'm so much clearer on what I want to share with the world. Would you consider the story, I mean, obviously not not autobiographical because you're not an outlaw, but some of those deeper themes as far as feeling like an outsider, are those coming from you, your personal experience growing up? Yeah, there's a lot of me in the show. There's a lot of my experience as an Asian American man. There's a lot of my experience in there. It's definitely not. None of the story has ever happened to me, but a lot of the issues that we deal with in the show are things that I have directly experienced, and I know a lot of our cast has directly experienced. I did pull a lot from my actual family, so like the grandma played by Wai Ching Ho in the show is like, I wrote my grandma, and when she saw the Zoom thing we did over the pandemic, she like called me and she's like, oh, you like decided to put your grandma on a show. Like she like knew, she immediately knew that it was her, which I loved. So there's a lot that I've taken from my family that I just think are just really fun characters. Yi, who grew up in West Suburban Lombard and Wheaton, acknowledges that certain parts of the project were inspired by some of the ugliness that emerged during the pandemic. There was a rise in anti-Asian rhetoric and hate crimes against Asians. The Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism found that anti-Asian hate crimes in the U.S. increased to 339 percent between 2020 and 2022. That was really upsetting when all that stuff was going down and... Um... It was really ugly. So yeah, my show deals with racism. There are moments in the show where we like confront it in like a really comedic way. And there is like a sense of catharsis that I wanted to manifest like with those moments for myself and for my cast and for all of the um, Asian Americans who might see the show. I wanted it to be like a purging of that stuff. So like there was like one review that was like, it's too much identity politics. That was something that I, I, I had read. And I was like, yeah, but like, it's intentional in that we are trying to like, I think excise it from ourselves or like put it out there in a way that feels over the top and like insane, wild, and in that way we can absolve it. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section on WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Chicago-based theater artist Matthew C. Yee about his world premiere musical, Lucy and Charlie's Honeymoon. Given the themes and subject matter of the musical, some people might be surprised by the sound of the project. Yee composed and wrote songs in a genre that he grew up with, classic country. I grew up with country and Americana music and folk, and um, I thought it would just be a really interesting contrast to discussion about the Asian American experience with the soundtrack of like American music. So you're a big country western fan? Yeah, definitely. I grew up listening to that stuff and uh, a lot of the music is styled after specifically like the 50s through like the 70s in like country Americana music. Not so much. I'm not so much like a modern country fan, but some of the older stuff I enjoy. Yeah. Audiences might feel like they're at Bob's Country Bunker when the musical opens. The cast takes the stage and goes right into a rowdy performance of a tune called Renegades. Lucy was born a Chinese immigrant, she came looking for a better world. And they knew that she would be the best, they told her when she was a girl. They saved and scrimped for private school and she excelled pretty okay. But soon found herself quite alienated by the culture of the USA. As she grew up, she realized who she wanted to be. Wasn't some genius scientist or some chair in the symphony. So she did drugs and fought and spit and wore leather jackets and jeans. And smoked in school and f***ed the rules. She was a first generation Asian American renegade. First generation Asian American renegade. She was a first generation. I remember being so excited about it, coming up with the, with the chorus, First Generation Asian American Renegades, because it's like a mouthful, but it's just a great descriptive line for, for that song and for, for the show. And really that, that song is the thesis of the play. It's all about them fighting against the thing that their parents wanted them to be. So writing that one was like, it came like really, really quickly. It was the first one of the show, the first one I'd written for the show. And it was really inspired by these um, country songs from like the 50s and 60s and folk songs too that are like about a legend. Like they're sung from the third person about, about another person who is like a tall tale. Jim Croce does that really good, like Bad Leroy Brown and like that sort of style of song. There's also um, Big Bad John, which is about like a gunslinger. Um, there's a lot of great examples of it. So like that was what I was going for with that one. Word of Cantonese, he was a first generation Asian American renegade. First generation Asian American renegade. He was a first generation Asian American renegade. Of course, as good as the songs are on paper, the musical only works if you have the talent to bring the compositions to life on stage. Several members of the cast are playing roles and instruments in what sounds like a real alt-country music band. Yeah, that was a challenge, because yeah, not only did we need, I mean, we largely Asian-American cast, and so finding the right people to play those roles was a challenge, but then also finding people that could sing and play instruments was a really big challenge. Yeah, it, it was difficult, but I think we found like the best people to do the job. Asian-American renegades, they were first-generation Asian-American renegades. Ultimately, Yi hopes audiences are entertained, of course, but also that they walk away with some new ideas. 
I hope that they, first of all, laugh a lot. So I want them to enjoy themselves, but I also want them to rethink their perceptions about the Asian American experience and like rethink what it means to be an American in general. And I just want them to have a lot of fun in the process. We deal with a lot of heavy issues in the show, but I never want the show to feel heavy. I always want to keep the ball in the air. And our cast is doing that really well. We're like going to dark places in some of these, especially some of the moments in the second act, but like we're finding a way to do it that doesn't feel like we're beating the audience over the head with it. We're like giving them moments of levity and like, and comedy mixed in. That's Matthew C. Yee. He's an artistic associate with Looking Glass Theater. He wrote the book, composed the music, and is starring in the company's world premiere musical, Lucy and Charlie's Honeymoon. It's running through July 16th. You can find more info at lookingglasstheater.org. Where do we take it from here? Rhinestone suits and new shiny cars. It's been the same way for you. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the program on WDCB every Sunday morning, thank you. But make sure to check out the show's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. That's theartsection.org. Also... If you have a question or suggestion for me or the show, you can reach me by emailing me at gzydic at wdcb.org, or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter with the handle at onairgary. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Bend down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk harder than a match here. But a night it's different world. Go out and find And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, happy Father's Day. Oh, yeah. I am Everyone a out there, all the fathers, including you. Thanks, thank you. Including you, Mr. Zyder. Thank you. Well, welcome back to you, Jonathan. The first official day of summer is this week. With that in mind, we thought now would be a good time for a summer theater preview. Lots to see over the next few months, including some outdoor options. Carrie's going to highlight some plays she's looking forward to, and Jonathan is spotlighting musicals. And with that, we'll jump into it. We'll turn to Jonathan first, and you've created these different themes. What's the the first group of musicals you want to highlight? Well, all all I see on my theatrical horizon this summer are musicals. Lots and lots of musicals, (laughs) probably nearly 20 musicals. I'm not going to mention all of them, but I'm going to mention a good many of them. (laughs) And what strikes me is that an entire group of musicals this summer are musicals about dead people. <laughs> what could be cheerier? <laughs> what, what, what could be more suitable for musicals? And what I mean by that, there is, for example, it's running currently for another week, Pippin at Music Theater Works out at the North Shore Center for the 
performing arts in Skokie. You know, a medieval uh, dead uh, prince and later a, a king. Uh, but more to the point, a lot of dead pop music stars. Uh, personality, a new show about uh, the uh, R&B singer Lloyd Price, just opened last week at the Studebaker Theater, and it's down there, downtown at the Studebaker, for, uh, uh, I think, an open run. They haven't posted a, a closing date. The Marriott Theater has put up Buddy, the Buddy Holly story, which is running now through August 13th. Uh, at the, in August, on August 1st, at the Nederlander Theater downtown in the Loop, you can see MJ, the musical about Michael Jackson. And that runs from August 1st to September 2nd. And then just after Labor Day, just squeaking, squeezing into the summer, the Drury Lane Theater in Oak Brook Terrace opens Ring of Fire, a jukebox <laughs> musical about Johnny Cash, opens September 7th and runs uh, through September and October. So a whole bunch of musicals about dead people. And that's just <laughs> for starts. <laughs> and then I think also, isn't music theater work doing the producers? So arguably, there's, there's dead people involved in that as well. So. <laughs> you mean like Hamlet? No. Okay. <laughs> no. And now we'll turn to Carrie, and I know you had wanted to talk about uh, this Jackalope Theater Company world premiere, Pretty Shahid, but uh, the company just announced it's canceling the production, which is a, a bummer. Hopefully everything is okay over at Jackalope. But the next play you want to talk about is, is kind of a similar theme. I, yeah, I'm going to keep a theme going here with uh, writers and artists from the, from what we in the U.S. call the Middle East. Writers Theater is presenting the local premiere of a play called A Distinct Society. It is written and directed by Canadian writer Karim Fami. In this play, an, uh, an Iranian family separated at the Canadian border by the Trump-era Muslim ban uses a library that straddles the border as their meeting place, and they have to sort of evade you know, border officials and kind of figure out what their next steps are going to be. As I said, it's a mid- Midwest premiere, absolutely top-notch cast, including Kate Fry, who has been in so many things over the years, Ron Barkhorter, who has been in a number of other <laughs> shows, including most recently a uh, wonderful turn in Leolina. This play, writer says, was inspired by true events, now, how much of it is actually based on true events and how much of it is you know, fanciful or embroidered by uh, Karim Fami, we'll, we will uh, have to wait and see. But it opens in previews on June 22nd and runs through July 23rd. So, yes, we have two uh, opportunities to see work from that part of the world or from writers who are part of the diaspora from that part of the world, I should, yeah. I should more accurately state. Yeah, and this writer's work, which is, is new to me, uh, I have heard good things about uh, his work. It comes recommended. So I look forward to seeing uh, that show out at the right. Writer's Theater. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. We're previewing some of the most anticipated theatrical productions taking place this summer in Chicago. Jonathan? If I jump back in, uh, <laughs> Carrie and Gary, my second category are family musicals, broadly speaking. Uh, such as, and, and meaning that mostly they are familiar, tried, and true. And we begin with West Side Story, which is continuing at Lyric Opera of Chicago for uh, another full week, and it is an outstanding production. It really is a wonderful uh, revival or new production of this classic musical. There are tickets available during this last week. West Side Story at Lyric Opera runs through uh, June 25th. Goodman Theater 
is beginning previews and then performances of the Who's Tommy at the Goodman <laughs> Theater. They, it opens in about a week, or previews begin this week coming up, and it runs through July 30th. Uh, and this is a, a new production being staged by the co-author and original Broadway director. So it should be uh, quite a, a good production, a good reinvention of the Who's Tommy. Co-Candy Productions, operating at the Chopin Theater down in Bucktown, is doing the SpongeBob musical. And that certainly is family-friendly fare. The SpongeBob musical at Chopin Theater opens July 7th and runs through Labor Day, September 3rd, Labor Day weekend. Um, Disney's Beauty and the Beast is popping up as the summer attraction at Chicago Shakespeare Theater on Navy Pier. They're doing a 75-minute version. It opens July 4th, runs uh, uh, till uh, August 20th, 75 minutes, and very cleverly they're doing two matinee performances uh, almost uh, each day and on weekends an 11 a.m. matinee and then a 2 p.m. matinee. So they definitely are aiming at a family audience uh, for that. And finally, Carrie, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago the producers, which <laughs> Music Theater Works is doing as their summer attraction, August 10th to August 20th at the North Shore Center for the Performing Arts in Skokie. And that certainly is indeed, I think, uh, a family-friendly musical. Well, I have for my next, I'm actually going to bundle together a couple of Steppenwolf shows that in some ways relate to family. The first is uh, Kate Arrington's Another Marriage. Kate Arrington has been a longtime Steppenwolf Ensemble member. I think this may be her first play, or certainly the first one that's had this kind of high-profile production. The description is that it's a story of an, a marriage that is an ever-evolving relationship that may never be quite finished. So that's a bit elliptical. It is, in fact, a playwriting debut, and it's a, you know, so it's a romantic comedy that sort of upends time. The sense I get is that it's sort of playing with the idea of if you chose another path. The wonderful Judy Greer is in it, as well as uh, some Steppenwolf Ensemble members like Jan Barford and Caroline Neff. Now, in a different vein, and I don't know that we could call this a family show, but uh, Steppenwolf is also reviving No Man's Land, Harold Pinter's 1975 <laughs> comedy of menace about aging writers and writer wannabes whose lives collide after a night of heavy drinking. Uh, it's, again, a star-studded uh, revival directed by the great uh, American director, Lust Waters, and starring the equally great Austin Pendleton and Jeff Perry. Since it's Pinter, if it's a hot day, I'm sure there'll be plenty on stage that will make you feel tense and clammy. That runs July 13th through August 20th. Um, another Marriage is running uh, through, it just opened this weekend, and it'll be running through July 23rd. So those are two different takes on... Uh, unconventional approaches to looking at family, perhaps. But we shall see. As I said, Another Marriage is a debut by Kate Arrington, who is an actor I've much admired on Steppenwolf uh, stages and elsewhere for quite some time. Uh, I was fortunate enough to see the uh, original uh, West End London production of No Man's Land many years ago, mm. which starred Sir John Gielgud and oh, Sir my. Rafe Richardson. Sir Rafe Richardson. And it was an extremely, it goes without saying, an extremely memorable evening in the it, theater. 
and I, I don't know if you would agree with me, John, but I don't think No Man's Land is revived as much as other, as much as Pinter is revived. It doesn't seem to be, you know, done nearly as often as, as perhaps The Caretaker or The Homecoming or some other uh, of his well-known work. So I'm quite looking forward to seeing that. Right. I agree. I think that's, uh, I think that is true. Uh, I jump back to my musicals, and I have a final grouping uh, of, of ones that are so different in their musical styles and their subjects and approach that they really don't fit into any other category. Um, and some of these are a little more sophisticated, a little more adult. Uh, one that is running right now, uh, a review, is The Real Housewives of Motown, a musical uh, review at the Black Ensemble Theater in uh, the Uptown neighborhood running through July 9th. And uh, I have not happened to see it, but I assume it's going to be using a lot of, a lot of good Motown music to, to pretend to sell something about the women who were married to male Motown stars. That, I take it, is the, uh, is the, <laughs> the premise of the show, The Real Housewives of Motown. I know that the Black Ensemble always delivers a lot of entertainment and talent for uh, the dollars you put out. And uh, so it's a, a good musical choice if you're into Motown music. Theo Theater uh, on Howard Street on the Evanston side of Howard. Once, once until uh, recently, the, to the Theo Ubique Cabaret Theater, now the Theo Cabaret Theater, is doing Passing Strange, the really singular and unique musical by the performing artist Stu, that is... Uh, a kind of autobiographical. He is a you know a young black man who goes to Germany during the height of its kind of punk scene to find himself and has a number of interesting experiences. And uh, it's an interestingly told with a uh, an unusual mix of of pop and folk and and rock musical styles. Passing strange at the uh, Theo. Cabaret Theater uh, through July 30th. Uh, the Mercury Theater in a few weeks on July 14th will open Rock of Ages, the jukebox big rock musical about 80s kind of heavy metal bands, and that will run at the Mercury Theater uh, on Southport in Chicago from July 14th to September 10th, so it has a two-month run. And finally, the Paramount Theater out in Aurora in their smaller second stage where they're doing edgier musicals and sometimes plays, they are opening a production of Next to Normal, the very, very effective and powerful musical about a dysfunctional family, uh, Next to Normal, opening July 26th and running through Labor Day weekend. Carrie, do you have another one? And I have something for people who, you know, are maybe looking for an excursion to summer camp that doesn't carry the risk of West Nile virus, or perhaps if you long for a trip to the coast of Maine but just can't swing it this year. Helena Handbag is offering Murder Rewrote, a comedy <laughs> featuring the detective skills of one Bessica Felcher, who becomes embroiled in investigating the death of Christina, the annoying daughter of a uh, Hollywood star, June Crayfish, who goes by... Mommy Dearest. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, June is played by David Serta, Helena Handbag's founder and artistic director, who has long been admired, uh, certainly by me, for his, uh, his Joan Crawford Im impersonations. Uh, if you've seen Helena Handbag, and we've certainly reviewed them on this program, you know that they, they really do excel at pop culture pastiches, very over-the-top characterizations, 
Uh, so this one will combine, you know, the murder mystery with with Mommy Dearest. And frankly, that just sounds like a hoot to me. Mm-hmm. That's going to be opening through Helena Handback at the Den Theater in Wicker Park. And that's going to be uh, in August, opening August 10th and running through September 16th. Our unique weather situation here in the Chicago area makes putting on outdoor theater productions pretty challenging for most of the year, but there is a three- or four-month window in the summer where it's perfect, and we're in that window right now, so each of the critics I know has a a couple outdoor options they want to talk about. Jonathan? One that uh, Carrie and I both like is uh, a company now in its 10th year, which is a little bit difficult for me to believe, and it's a company called Midsummer Flight. Midsummer Flight. They do one Shakespeare show each year outdoors, and their productions are free. This year they're doing Cymbeline, which is one of Shakespeare's late plays, and they're kind of, well, how did someone describe it? They said, if Shakespeare were writing an episode of Game of Thrones, this would be it. (laughs) Cymbeline. And they are doing it uh, from uh, July 7th to uh, August 13th, in uh, something like uh, six or seven different city parks, a different park each weekend, beginning the weekend of July 7th, 8th, and 9th uh, at the Women's Park on uh, in South Indiana uh, Avenue. And uh, their curtain times are always at 6 p.m., so you're not there too late and not there too long after dark. And Cymbeline, presented by Midsummer Flight, that's Midsummer spelled M-I-D-S-O-M-M-E-R, Midsummer Flight, in case you want to look up the exact schedule online. Right. I've quite enjoyed other shows over the years. And, I, you know, what could be about more summary than a romance of star-crossed lovers, evil stepmothers, a potion that brings on something resembling death, and finally a beheading. I mean, that's all I need in, like, summer fans, so... <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Oops, what do you? Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Carrie, do you have an outdoor pick? Yes, Oak Park Festival Theater, which recently named a new artistic director, Peter Anderson, is presenting a Midsummer Night's Dream opening July fifteenth. They are one of the oldest running companies in the area, certainly one of the oldest outdoor companies. Uh, they perform in beautiful Austin Gardens. With anybody who hasn't been there, right in the heart of downtown Oak Park. So if you want to make a day of it, you could certainly, you know, do some tours at the Frank Lloyd Wright Home and Studio or any of the other wonderful places that Oak Park has to offer. Um, this production is uh, directed by uh, Peter Anderson and has a wonderful cast, including Molly Brennan as Bottom. Molly Brennan is, for anyone who's been following uh, comedy and theater in Chicago, she was one of the founding members of 500 Clowns. She performed with House Theater of Chicago. Uh, Will Wilhelm, who just finished, will be playing Puck, Will Wilhelm, uh, they just did a show at About Face Theater about Shakespeare and their journey as a, as a non-binary performer with the work of Shakespeare. So I, I, I have the sense that this is not going to be, you know, a, a, a typical experience with Midsummer Night's Dream, and it is, in fact, the first thing that Peter Anderson's doing, so it'll be a chance to get a, a sense of what direction he might be taking this venerable company into. Uh, and Oak Park Festival... Uh, indeed, I think is closer to 50 years old than anything else. I think uh, so, yeah. 48, I think they something. said 75 is when they formed. So, yes, they're getting right it's, up there. So. You, you, yeah, uh, 1975 is when the company formed, mm-hmm. right? So not that they're 75 right, not years that they're old. Not that they're 75 years old. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. No, no, not uh, quite that. <laughs> well, you know, the suburb right next door to Oak Park is Forest Park. And Forest Park 
uh, has a brand new Shakespeare Festival outdoors in the summer. It was started by uh, uh, several of the theater faculty members of the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Theater and Music, and they will be doing for their third summer Measure for Measure, one of Shakespeare's uh, darker comedies, uh, uh, problem plays, and they're running it for two weeks in August, August 4th to 13th, on the rather lovely grounds of a of a private park in Forest Park called Altenheim. Altenheim. And they're starting small and modestly. Uh, they've managed to survive three years uh, in the shadow of their larger, older <laughs> Oak Park neighbors. And uh, I hope that they do succeed. So measure for measure, Forest Park Shakespeare Festival, uh, August 4th to 13th. That would be one of my outdoor picks as well. And I have one more quick recommendation to make. I just saw Second City's latest main stage show, uh, Don't Quit Your Daydream, and I think it's absolutely delightful, a really solid cast. So I would urge our listeners, if you're thinking about shows to take out of town visitors to, or if you haven't been to Second City in a while, that might be a good one to check out. And there are so many other wonderful comedy and sketch companies around Chicago. We are, you know, the hotbed for this kind of performance, this kind of comedy. So there's Annoyance, there's I.O. The Den Theater offers a steady stream of stand-up comedy for people who are interested in that. So if you are looking for ways to, you know, up the amount of laughs in your life, don't forget to look at some of the, uh, the stalwarts who have been keeping this going for many years. You mean American politics aren't enough to keep us all in stitches? <laughs> you know, I would say what's great about this Second City show is, and this is true of the last one that I saw on the main stage, too, is they're not striving to be topical or political. I mean, there are references, but it is really grounded in relationships and sort of everyday absurdity, and I think that that actually makes it fresher than trying to respond to, you know, ripped from the headlines. I mean, that's something that the late-night comedy shows SNL can do. I think Second City is always at its best when it's really letting the, the performers stretch their wings and try on different kinds of characters, kind of taking sketches into uh, sometimes very poignant directions, but sort of un, you know un, unexpected directions. Well, there's plenty of funny things in this one. There's, there's menopausal Barbie, who would prefer you just call her Barb. There's, you know, uh, any number of um, pieces that really lean into identity. It's one of the more diverse casts that I, you know, they've been moving in that direction for quite a while. And this is a, a cast that's also quite very gifted at physical comedy as well. So I was quite taken with Don't Quit Your Daydream. I want to toss out one more outdoor summertime event because it's one of the free events. That's kind of where we started. And that is Porchlight Music Theater, which uh, we usually uh, uh, very review very favorably for their big main stage productions, Porchlight Music Theaters, teaming with Chicago Park District, to present a one-hour review of Broadway music, Broadway songs, uh, past and present, Broadway in your backyard, they call it. And they will be presenting uh, these uh, one-hour concerts beginning at 6 p.m. at 12 different city parks over successive weekends from June 27th, uh, you know, which is uh, in, in next weekend, to uh, August 8th. June 27th to August 8th, Porchlight Music Theater, Broadway in Your Backyard. Um, theaters as, uh, as, as well-spaced in Chicago as the Southside Cultural Center and Washington Park 
uh, up to Portage Park on the northwest side. So check it out. It's a good yeah. uh, free one-hour uh, show, and uh, they always do lovely work. Yeah, Jonathan, when we talked about uh, Chicago Dance Month of, of, you know, a few episodes yes. ago, we yeah. I think we mentioned Night Out in the Parks, and I would also uh, encourage our viewer, or, sorry, our listeners to check out the Chicago Park District site. Night Out in the Parks offers so many different kinds of performances, some with, you know, dance lessons before the event or workshops for children. It's just very rich, a great diversity of programming. Um, and I think, you know, if you're looking for something to do on the weekend uh, or on a weeknight with the kids or just, just yourself, um, that's a great way to make new friends and learn some new things and see some artists that perhaps you're not, you have not been familiar with in the past. So lots to see. It's kind of been a gradual ramp up when you think about 2020. There was nothing 2021. I think some start and stop. And then last year, well, we had a, a schedule, but maybe not as robust as this year. Gary, you know, this year really is amazing. There is so much theater and there is so much dance going on this summer that I'm not going to have any time to sit on my terrace and drink my white wine. <laughs> <laughs> you sure about that? Well, thanks. Well, that's what you can sneak it into a brown paper bag in the park, Jonathan, and nobody will be the wiser. I certainly won't tell anyone. So we did cover a lot. I'll try to post a, a link to these productions on the theartsection.org. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. Most welcome, both of you. Thank you. Mama, I'm depending on you. Tell me the truth. Mama just hung her head and said, son... Papa was a rolling stone Wherever he laid his hat was his home You're tuned to WDCV 90.9 and 90.7 FM. This is the art section. My name's Gary Zydek. I wanted to play some Father's Day tunes on this week's show. Couple came to mind. Who had the temptations? Papa was a Rolling Stone. And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man on the phone. When you're coming home, Daddy, don't know when. But we'll get together then. You know we'll have of course, Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle. There are a bunch of songs about dads, though not all of them offer positive depictions. When it comes to tunes about dads, you can't do much better than... Horace Silver's Song for My Father. Released on the album of the same name in 1965, Song for My Father became one of Silver's most popular compositions. It's been said that Silver wrote the tune after a trip to Brazil. He dedicated it to his father, who was born on an island in Cape Verde. In fact, a picture of Silver's dad, John Tavares Silva, is on the cover of the original album. Pretty nice gift to your dad. A world famous jazz composition. Beats a necktie. 
Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there listening. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the art section. Too many bottles of this wine we can't pronounce. Too many bowls of that green, no lucky charms. The maids come around too much. Parents ain't around enough. What comes to mind when you hear the term influencer? Dream job? Disgust? Indifference? However you personally feel, influencers are here to stay because a large number of people follow them on social media and are in fact influenced by them to buy products. Companies have taken notice. The Harvard Business Review cited a recent report that estimated $16.4 billion was spent on influencer marketing in 2022. That's billions with a B. That same report predicted the influencer industry to grow to $21.1 billion this year. Despite those gargantuan numbers, the influencer industry hasn't received a lot of attention in the mainstream media. Glamour Magazine senior editor Stephanie McNeil has been following influencers since the term was first introduced. Her new book, Swipe Up for More, Inside the Unfiltered Lives of Influencers, aims to shed some new light on this world of picture-perfect posts and SpawnCon. That's short for sponsored content. McNeil offers a nice overview of the industry, recapping its origins, meteoric rise, and current status. But Swipe Up for More really stands out for its behind-the-scenes reporting on what it's like to be an influencer today. The New York-based writer was granted access to three successful influencers and spent a few years following the ups and downs of their professional and personal lives. I recently caught up with McNeil to talk about her new book and some of the misconceptions surrounding the influencer world. You write about this early in, in your book, but when did you first start taking notice of influencers? I graduated from college and I was 22, and I really needed to learn how to live. (laughs) And so I remember being on my computer and just Googling something like what clothes to wear to the office or, you know, what recipes to make in a studio apartment. And I stumbled upon blogs and blogs were really, was a really robust community back in those days. And it was really, you would go on one blog and they would have a whole list on the side of all of these other blogs you should check out, and they would comment on each other's blogs. And so pretty soon, I kind of had this blog obsession where I would spend a lot of time during the day just reading blogs, and they would update every day, and they had all these tips and shopping and wellness and all this great stuff. So I really became a pretty devoted reader of blogs and just a really um, interested consumer in bloggers and then you know eventually influencers, which is kind of what the blogosphere turned into. And a couple of, probably five or six years ago, when I was working at BuzzFeed News, started wondering if other people were just as interested in as I was in these bloggers and influencers. And I had a feeling they were because my friends and I would talk about it, but I didn't really see a lot of genuine discussion about it in you know culture at large and in the mainstream media. So I started writing about influencers for BuzzFeed News, and I got such a great response from the readers 
that I started to think, you know, I think I could write a whole book and really do something cool, just describing the entire influencer economy. And I think you write about this early on in the book, too, and it might be helpful for listeners. For some people, anyone with an online following gets lumped into this general category of internet celebrity with like the terms content creator and influencer sometimes used interchangeably. But from your perspective, there's a difference. Yeah, I really see a distinct line between people who create primarily, at least when the when the industry started, you know, in the early 2010, there was a really fine line between people who created primarily in the video format and the people who created primarily in the photo and written online format. And in the book, I distinguish them as video creators and influencers. And I say that I, I'm going to focus specifically on influencers because I believe that, you know, studying this part of the industry is really interesting. And I think to try to cover everything would be a little too much. It would be like saying I'm going to write a book about just music in general, as opposed to writing (laughs) about, you know, pop or rock, you know, that would be really difficult. Um, And I do see the parts of the industry as that distinct as the difference between, you know, pop or country or rock there, you know, they're, they're their own ecosystems, depending on the style of influencing. So for this book, specifically, I focused on what I call, you know, influencers, which are people who, you know, the industry was born, like I said, with blogs, and then migrated over to Instagram. But there's kind of a couple of things that set them apart. For one, you know, they really focused on almost a magazine like experience, you know, written word, photos, you know, obviously some video, but um, at the beginning, it was a lot more um, like reading a magazine than, you know, watching television. And they're really seeking a sustained relationship with their audience over just bursts of virality. So on YouTube, you know, obviously YouTubers had subscribers and they would come back and back. But, you know, a lot of them got big through, you know, a huge viral video or, you know, having a ton of views. And with influencers, it was more about having people who were devoted to you who would come back day after day and shop your products and really you know, have that that relationship with you that they wanted to listen to your recommendations. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm talking with author Stephanie McNeil about her new book, Swipe Up for More, Inside the Unfiltered Lives of Influencers. So you had the idea for the book. How did you decide which influencers you were going to profile for the project? I knew I couldn't focus on everyone. (laughs) So I wanted to pick just a couple of people who I felt like really were emblematic of the industry in different ways. And my first subject, Caitlin Covington, is a very, I would say, you know, typical influencer. When you picture an influencer, you probably think of someone like her. She's someone who's been in the industry for a really long time. She focuses on fashion and style and lifestyle. So, you know, she kind of checked that box for me. And then mommy blogging, specifically um, mommy blogging that sprung from the LDS community in Utah is something that you know, really set the the foundation for the industry in so many ways. And so I knew I wanted to talk to someone who was involved in that space. And I chose Shannon Bird because she is not only someone who, you know, has been a mommy blogger in Utah for so long, but she also has a really interesting story um, and, you know, has people who are very hot and cold about her online. And because, you know, the online discussion about influencers is just as, interesting to me as, you know, what happens on social media. I wanted to talk to her and, you know, navigating that. And then I knew I wanted to cover someone who, you know, wasn't, you know, the stereotypical influencer, who was someone who 
was more, um, I think in the book I called him a niche content creator, where, you know, you really can take almost any hobby or passion and make an influencing career out of that. And, you know, this might have been a somewhat selfish choice, but um, I I love running. I, you know, love to do marathons, half marathons. I've been running my whole life since high school. And I personally follow a lot of running bloggers and running influencers. So that's where I gravitated. Um, and Myrna Valerio is such a great voice in that space. It was really interesting backstory. Um, so that's why I chose her. So is it fair to say if we go back to... Caitlin Covington, a.k.a. Southern Curls and Pearls. She's an example of an OG lifestyle fashion influencer. She really kind of helped create this this pathway that now exists. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, she started blogging in 2012 and as a college student. And she has such an interesting story because to me, if you look at her, especially if you look at her through today's lens of what she built, um, you know, she has millions over a million followers on Instagram, a huge platform with her blog, um, and really is one of the most in-demand content creators for lifestyle and fashion brands to work with. And, you know, she's a, a beautiful woman. She's very highly educated, and she went to journalism school. And, you know, I think if you were to look at a lineup and she was in it and you say, which girl would be the most likely to make it at a New York fashion magazine? Like, you would pick Caitlyn. She's just <laughs> kind of an it girl. And her story, which I wasn't aware of before I spoke to her for this book, was that she had wanted desperately to work in the New York fashion magazine industry. Um, And she had tried really hard to get a job there, and she couldn't afford to take an entry-level job in New York. And so she had started this blog on the side, and she had taken a job that, you know, was not what she wanted to do in PR, and she started this blog, and essentially built her own fashion magazine. And I found that story so interesting, not because that's just pretty remarkable, but also because it shows how influencing has democratized that world in so many ways. Because if someone is, you know, before influencers, they're really, you know, and I say this as one of them, you know, I work at a women's fashion magazine in New York, but it's really, it was really hard to, you know, make a real name for yourself in that industry and if someone like Caitlin who is you know beautiful young you know white woman you know has a hard time making it you know how are you know women from marginalized backgrounds going to have an easy time getting in Um, and I thought that was just a really interesting story and shows how like you know and we can see in now in women's media how you know having so many more diverse voices at the table through influencers who are able to build their own um, platforms and really democratize the industry that has had a great impact on women's media in general, where, you know, magazines now are more diverse and, you know, are featuring, you know, people who look different. So I, I just found that really fascinating. And then for uh, Myrna Valerio, as you mentioned, like in a, this niche in the running fitness inclusivity spheres, but it seems like she was posting for herself and then her account slash brand blew up by happenstance. Absolutely. Um, she is, Myrna is just like one of the most dynamic people I've ever met. <laughs> and she is just like a natural influencer, like taking the, the, what we know of now as an influencer out of it. She's just like the type of person who's like, you want to listen to in like a very base level. Um, and she, yeah, she had a health scare in her early thirties and she got back into running and just was posting on Facebook about it, you know, just writing about it on Facebook um, as a creative outlet and then eventually started writing a blog and 
you know, people have just gravitated to her in so such a crazy way. And it's really just completely revolutionized her life. Um, you know, she was a teacher and worked as a teacher for decades before she quit to do content creation full time. And, you know, just the freedom that that's given her, um, you know, she was working at boarding schools, going kind of from school to school, um, but had dreamed of living somewhere um, where she could have a lot of access to the outdoors. And now she and her son live in Vermont and, you know, they're looking at, you know, properties and, you know, it's just like a really cool story about how this is an influencer career can provide a lot of, I feel like, restrictions sometimes in like a loss of privacy and stuff like that, but it also can provide a lot of freedom. And then Shannon Bird is the mommy slash lifestyle influencer that you write about. And she probably wouldn't see it this way. But from my perspective, it came across a little bit like a, a cautionary tale for anyone who thinks being an influencer is all roses. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that people don't really understand the mental toll of, you know, being an influencer, you gain a lot. You know, you gain money, you own your own business, you don't have to answer to anyone, but you fundamentally give up a piece of yourself, which is like your privacy, essentially. And, you know, you have to, in order to be successful, open up at least a certain amount of yourself to public consumption and let people tear you apart if they so choose. And, you know, Shannon's interesting in particular because, you know, she wasn't someone who, I think if you go out today and, you know, I say, I want to start a mommy blog, you know, my eyes are going to be open. I'm going to know that what people are going to do and say about me. But, you know, when she started, she was literally just doing a blog for her family. She wasn't really trying to make this into a career. And it was almost like it happened in a whirlwind. And now she's looking back and, you know, she does face a lot of criticism on the Internet. And she's kind of like, whoa, you know how did I end up in this and what do I do now? So yeah, it's, it's interesting because I don't know if we'll ever see that perfect storm again. I don't think that people who, I think everyone who's starting an Instagram with the intent of becoming an influencer right now kind of knows a lot more about what they're getting into. Right, right. You spend time kind of getting into the, that negative side, the positives are, are out there. Uh, I think for a lot of people, they see like the lifestyle and it's aspirational, but then the downsides come in the form of different things, but a lot of negative comments directed right at you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just, you know, having it's almost like give away a piece of yourself to public consumption. And, you know, it's the same that bargain that celebrities deal with. Um, you know, you're never going to have that same level of privacy or every, you know, if if you're an influencer and you post you're using XYZ product and people don't like that you're using XYZ products, they're going to tell you about that. And that can be as innocuous as like literally using a product to how you parent. And in order to be an influencer, you have to be okay with that. And I think, you know, it's not for everyone, but for some people, they think it's worth it. Another thing that really comes across in the book is just how much money is in play here and how big of an industry it now is. And so from the, the company slash business perspective, working with influencers just makes financial sense. Yeah, that was something that I didn't really understand fully until I started researching the book, which is not just how much money influencers are making, but how much of a great deal it is for brands. Um, you think, you know, if a brand is going to set out and make a commercial, that they have to employ dozens and dozens and dozens of people to make this commercial. And 
you know, pay a lot of money to make a commercial. But if they work with an influencer, they can probably pay them 10% of that budget. And that's all they have to do. They say, okay, you know, make an Instagram post with XYZ. And, you know, they're involved with the creative process to some extent. But it's not like if you're an influencer and you sign up with a brand to make SpawnCon, they send a whole production team to your house. You know, if you want to have a professional photographer, you have to hire someone and that comes out of your pay. So for brands, you know, I think people hear, you know, someone making, for example, $50,000 for a paid ad campaign and they're pearl clutching like, oh my gosh, that's so much money. But if that person has a million followers and brands are getting a huge ROI on selling to those million followers, you know, they probably would have paid a production company $500,000 to make that commercial. For brands, it's actually a pretty sweet deal, especially before, you know, people and lawyers and agents got involved to make sure that the brands were treating the influencers fairly. I mean, before that, a lot of them were getting access to the influencers' followers for pennies. I'm sure, I guess they're looking at a combination of things, but as far as the company's perspective, are they looking at followers and then they can track engagement from uh, like how people are linking to their stuff? Yeah. So um, over the past couple of years, there's been a big push to focus more on engagement than follower count, just because engagement is what sells the product. You know, you can have 500,000 followers, but if no one really cares about your post and they all just kind of don't see your stuff and they don't buy from you because they don't trust you, that's not as valuable as someone with 50,000 followers who every one of those followers is super engaged and super wants to buy your product. So that's the way that the influencer industry is going, which is great because, you know, there's some inherent biases and racism in the influencer industry where, you know, white influencers tend to have a bigger platform, but they don't tend to have a more engaged platform. So by focusing on engagement, that really gives people who are facing these inherent biases a seat at the table and really kind of making it a more equitable industry overall. And then the last thing, just what are you hoping readers take away from the book? I hope that they learn something about the industry, and I hope that they can think critically about how influencers have influenced them, because I think it's a really fascinating personal journey to go on. That's Stephanie McNeil. She's the author of Swipe Up for More, Inside the Unfiltered Lives of Influencers. It's available everywhere books are sold. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. for another edition of the Arts Section right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Enjoy this nice weather. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Thanks for listening.